Welcome to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com, dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do. Serving leaders, managers, and people who will be, helping you reach excellence in your work and achieve your personal goals at the same time. Sign up for the free course at clearandopen.com. If you can sell someone a pill every day for the rest of their life, well, that makes the pharmaceutical companies incredibly rich, doesn't it? So where in the system, speaking systematically now, where in the system is their incentive to heal people so deeply that they don't need a subscription plan to your pills? Right? It's just not set up that way. Hi, it's Joseph, and thanks for tuning in to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com. Before we get into this episode, I encourage you to pause for a moment and consider the answer to this question. What do you want and how is life telling you to change to get it? Really pause the episode for a couple of minutes and think about your answer. If you want an A on the assignment, write out your answer. Inquire into yourself. This will help you actively engage in the discussion you're about to listen to and get the most out of not just this episode, but the entire series on accountability as a teacher. If you aren't willing to do that, this series may not be for you. This isn't a quick fix solution, but if you want to create lasting and real change in your business or your life, and you're willing to put the work necessary in to do so, then I urge you to pay attention. 18 years of teaching this kind of stuff has shown me that if you really commit to doing this work, you will get the results you desire. So if you're willing to take on that challenge, let's get started. This series is taken from the second session of the Accountability Path 2.0 course, which is now available online at clearandopen.com. So if it appeals to you, you might want to take the whole course. Speaking of courses, I want to tell you about the upcoming course for Clear and Open's 2020 summer quarter. It's called Clear Thinking 2 Paradigmatic Analysis. It begins July 2nd and runs nine weeks. For human beings, results are the consequences of actions. And actions stem from conscious intentions. But where do our intentions come from? Have you ever thought about that? Intentions come from often unconscious motives driven by our largely unconscious paradigm. Your paradigm is your picture of what life is, why we're here, the cause of human suffering, the path to end that suffering, and based on all of that, what's good and what's bad in any moment. All human beings operate inside a paradigm, and most of them are oblivious to it. The result is their incoherent patchwork values cause them to live confused and painful lives. And when a person cannot see their own paradigm, they also cannot see another's, which results in unnecessary conflict, disappointment, and breached trust. People constantly tell you about their deepest values and beliefs if you know how to listen. Often they tell you things they don't even want you to know. This information is invaluable when deciding who to trust and how much and with what, and critical in leadership and management. This course reveals one of my most treasured secrets, if you will. I use paradigmatic analysis constantly. It's one of the ways I shock people by seeing dysfunctional business themes in minutes that take some of my colleagues years. This course, if you take it seriously, will make you the smartest person in the room. This is both a promise and a warning because that status comes with it a price. Everything does. 
For more information and registration, go to courses.clearandopen.com and look for Clear Thinking 2. Clear and Open Dojo members get access to the live course starting July 2nd. If you like these podcasts, consider becoming a member to take your growth to the next level. Thanks so much for listening. Let's dive in. So last week, I invited you to consider the question. I have it written down here. What do you want and how is life telling you to change to get it? What do you want and how is life telling you to change to get it? And this question is an entree into the topic du jour, which is our conditioning around what accountability is and distorted beliefs, values, attitudes, orientations we have about it. Because again, while the content of this course is going to be about the accountability path, the content of the path itself is the five steps, the notice, the nudge, the talk. I forget if I call it the talk or the conversation. That's how non-important the content is to me. Uh, the, I think I call it conversation, the carefrontation and the line. That's the content of it. But like all tools, the context is everything. I use the metaphor of martial arts a lot. You can learn thousands of techniques and they're really interesting and cool. But if you panic when you get attacked, none of them mean anything because you're off balance. And all of those techniques require being centered, being grounded. You know, you may have a really good hammer, but if you hold it with two fingers, it's not going to be very powerful, right? How we wield that tool, how we orient toward the situation is everything. And that's the piece of education, conditioning, training that is most lacking in our world. And the way it looks to me is most of society is oriented toward what's the knowledge, what's the tool, what's the skill that will get me what I want. In other words, how do I get a better hammer? They're holding their hammer with two fingers and trying to pound nails with it and going, the nails are not going in, I need a better hammer. Now, why would that be? Well, because the notion that you need a better hammer is a lot more comfortable then something about you needs to change, right? Because that's the orientation that we have that we don't even realize. The, one of the most upstream orientations, upstream unconscious orientations that we have as human beings as we move through our lives that gets us into the most trouble is this subtle and pervasive idea that says, who I am is fine. Now, how do, how do I stay this version of me and get what I want? How do I stay this version of me and get what I want? Meanwhile, how it looks to me, and I think how it will look to you if you look closely enough, life's perspective, the intrinsic intelligence and design of life, is saying quite the opposite. It's saying, how do I support this person to change, to become a greater expression of themselves. They can get what they want, 
but they're going to have to change to get it. That opposition is the cause of all suffering. That's it. Well, now, which perspective is right? <laughs> you know? So if we have the orientation of like, no, no, I'm fine. I like this version of me. It's great. Now, can I have all the things that I want? And life goes, mm, you're not quite there yet. The longer you stay in argument of that, the more you will suffer. And uh, I want to do digestions from this question and and sharings, but um, I want to go right into an example around this because it will help to illustrate and and maybe help for you to see how this applies to you. So let's talk about a, uh, let's use a really light and easy example. Depression. That was a joke. I have experienced depression as long as I can remember being conscious as a human being. It goes all the way back to my early, early childhood. And beginning in probably my early 20s, I started to actually try to do something about it. It wasn't until my college years that it became really acute and I started to really experience the effects of it. And um, that was early, early 90s. I don't think, I think antidepressants came on the scene in like uh, mid-90s, late-90s. So that wasn't an option and it never really appealed to me, even when it did show up as one. And it wasn't until I would say about last year that I would say, I hesitate to use the word cured because that's not really how it looks, but um, that's what really is the right word eclipsed i've eclipsed depression like got bigger than you know and of course tomorrow could be totally different the next moment could be totally different but i want to use it as an example of how the accountability of suffering is a teacher for us and to illustrate the conditioning that we start out with that is so stagnative and destructive to that learning process so What's the Western medicine picture of depression? What is it and what is one to do about it? If you go to a doctor, psychiatrist or an internist, what, and uh, you can go to any doctor. Actually, I've heard of, uh, I have an OBGYN client who says she has colleagues who prescribe antidepressants. Interesting, right? Because they can do that. If you're a doctor, you can prescribe any drug, whether it's in your specialty or not, which... It's a whole other question, right? So what's the Western medicine picture of it? Something's broken and I'm going to give you a pill to fix it. <laughs> yeah, right. Something yeah. to be masked. Yes, something to be masked. Now, um, now, before we run down Western medicine, I can walk because of Western medicine. My, my right foot was reconstructed after a car accident when I was three. Uh, and so when it comes to like physically fixing things, or killing things like infections or cancer, sort of another story. But uh, Western medicine is absolutely brilliant and genius at fixing things and cutting things off, killing things you know that shouldn't be there. Wonderful. Sanitation, I mean, all that was driven by, uh, by Western medicine. You know, like in the, before like the mid-1850s or so, uh, doctors didn't wash their hands before they did surgery. 
because they're stunning to think about that. It wasn't that long ago because, you know, the idea of microscopic bacteria, well, that was absurd, you know, and then someone came along and created this thing called a microscope and said, look, there it is. They're like, oh, better wash our hands then. That was all driven by Western medicine. It's done wonderful things. But the principle here is the right tool for the job. And the arrogance of Western medicine is that because it can do so many brilliant things, it starts to get a little too big for its britches. Um, it, it starts to think it can do things that it can't. So if you ask a, a Western doctor what depression is, they'll tell you, <clears throat> if you ask enough questions, they'll tell you it's an imbalance in brain chemistry, right? Use words like dopamine, serotonin, and whatnot. But if you keep saying why, yeah, but why? What causes the imbalance in brain chemistry? They'll say something, they'll give you like a confident, well, we don't really know, or we don't fully understand it, which is code for we have no idea. And because we've got some pills that will make the symptoms go away, we're not that curious about it. Because while I'm I'm sure there are many, many doctors who would love to help someone completely eclipse something like depression or anxiety or whatever it is. The system is set up in such a way that there's no incentive there. Because if you can sell someone a pill every day for the rest of their life, well, that makes the pharmaceutical companies incredibly rich, doesn't it? So where in the system, speaking systematically now, where in the system is there incentive to heal people so deeply that they don't need a subscription plan to your pills? Right? It's just not set up that way. And then you add in just the limitations of the model. It's relatively young. I mean, the idea of mental illness, psychology, remember, is about 120 years old. Not very old at all. I like to say when physical science was that old, everything was made of earth, fire, air, and water. Right? How powerful a model was that? Right? Now that we know there's 120-odd elements, we can do lots of different things with it predictively. Well, one day... Doctors may understand how the emotional body works and how the mind works in such a way that it's a little more sophisticated than earth, fire, air, and water. But right now, it's brain chemistry imbalance, cause unknown. Well, when you don't really know the cause of something, good luck trying to solve it, right? It's like, you know, you may get lucky with your computer. If you don't know what's wrong with it, you can just sort of reboot and be like, I hope that works. You know, but if the hard drive is dying and you don't know, you will not solve that problem until you understand the cause, right? That's how problem solving works. When you don't understand the cause of a problem, the best you can do is treat the symptoms of it. And that's what Western medicine does with depression, which would be fine if they admitted that and said, and we're putting a lot of resources in understanding why brain chemistry gets imbalanced like this in the first place, because we understand until we get to that. These pills are just a placeholder for a cure, right? But I don't hear such talk very often. So I tried a lot of things to deal with my depression, many, many, many things. And let me start by saying there's a fork in the road with something like depression and many, many other things. And that is you either decide that it's a set of symptoms that need to be treated, ameliorated, made a little bit better, 
so that you can bear it. Or you decide that it's something that should be gone, right? And that's the nature of any pain, any suffering. You know, for example, something as simple as a headache. People get headaches every day. What's the cause? Well, they are a myriad, right? For many people, the cause of their headaches is poor posture, right? Easy to imagine that. I definitely, as I say that, I lift my sternum and straighten up. I have a long neck. It's easy for me to do this. That makes my uh, paraspinous muscles in my neck work extra hard. They tighten up, causes a headache. Really simple example. The headache is pain that has information in it that says your posture sucks, right? If I take ibuprofen every time I have a headache, that covers up the pain and represses the information, right? Really simple. Now, when the pain is something that wants you to kill yourself, it's extra hard to listen to, isn't it? Right? Easy to say about a headache, although we're not necessarily very good at listening to that. But when the pain is so great, it makes you want to contract away from it and say, oh, this is unbearable. I can't get out of bed. I can't work. I don't want to live. I just want this pain to go away. It's heart-wrenchingly understandable, of course, that you don't want to turn toward that pain. And it can seem like, in those moments, the hardest thing in the world to do. But that is what there is to do. That's what it's about. That's why it's there. And that pain will not go away until you receive the information it's trying to give you. For me, that took about 25 years. Layer upon layer. 25 years, tens of thousands of hours, an enormous amount of energy, probably tens of thousands of dollars too, all invested in, I didn't really get it until the end, you know, invested in the journey of what is depression trying to teach me? And, you know, maybe one day on the list of books, I'll probably never write. I would, I would love to write about that journey. But let's skip to the end. In the case of depression, depression is a defense mechanism. It doesn't look that way. It doesn't feel that way. But if you really, really investigate, turn toward and look at exactly how it works, you will see it as a contraction from reality. I mean, it's easy to see intellectually that that's what it is. It's in extreme forms, it's wanting to be gone. You know, a friend of a friend of mine committed suicide a, a few months ago and, uh, I was talking to her about it and I found myself saying, every suicide is an act of love. Every suicide is an act of love. Because what's going on inside a person who does that is they're in so much pain that the only way they know to deal with it is to end their life. Because they know, or at least suspect, that that will make the pain go away. It's protection. And the contraction of every depressive thought, everything smaller than suicide, which is sort of the ultimate uh, uh, depressive action, the manifestation of those thoughts. Every depressive thought is protection. It's a contractive protection, like a, 
hermit crab retreating into its shell. And so the process of healing or eclipsing something like depression is to see exactly in slow motion, in rigorous detail, how that works. Because in the beginning, you don't see it. You just feel the symptoms of it. You don't see actually the mechanism of it. So for me, for example, uh, for years, I mean, as long as I've been coaching, one of my depression triggers, because that's the thing that you need to understand, and it's the same with any difficult emotion, anxiety trigger, um, anger trigger, whatever it is. If suddenly you're feeling a quote-unquote negative emotion, your job is to figure out how you did that. How did that happen? Where did it come from? It may seem random, but it's not. There was a cause. And that becomes your Sherlock Holmes uh, task to be an investigator and figure out how did you do that. So for me, for example, when I encounter a stubborn client, and they all are, including myself, and it's my job to get people to listen to things they don't necessarily want to listen to. Just uh, three days ago, I confronted a very rich celebrity client of mine with how they scare people that they work with. This person is very powerful. It's worth tens of millions of dollars and has attracted staff, friends, colleagues around him that are all yes men and women. And everybody's afraid to stand up to them. This is like a phenomena in the rich and powerful world. This is a challenge you have when you're worth tens of millions of dollars or more. Everyone's afraid to tell you what the truth is because they're afraid of being fired or ruined or blackballed or whatever. It's a really interesting phenomenon. And he is a very, very powerful guy and has a ton of gifts, a ton of talents. He's an artist, an entrepreneur, brilliant guy, and he doesn't know his own strength. So he's not malevolent by any means. He's not a tyrant or anything, but every once in a while, he flies off the handle in such a way that people never forget. And so then they start tiptoeing around him and unconsciously withhold information or quit or make his emotional state their responsibility so that they become overwhelmed in their own job. And it erodes the effectiveness of the business because those are resources being used or information not being used. So uh, I confronted him on, on Tuesday, sort of a second time. And it was like standing up to a bully when I was 12 years old. I was so scared. I was literally shaking because this guy's just powerful. And for the following 24 hours. It went pretty well. I didn't think it could have gone much better. But for the following 24 hours, I noticed all of these thoughts. In addition to the fear that I've pushed him too far and I was going to get fired, there was an anxiety trigger there. I had to keep talking to myself like, well, what's the worst thing that happens? They fire me. Okay. There are more clients in the sea. End of story. But then, you know, like another hundred times, well, what if, what if, what if? Oh no, did I ruin it? I screw up. But also, my old friend, the depressive mind. People don't listen. This is hopeless. Why do I bother? 
I worked so hard to try to get this through this guy and he's not listening. And all of that goes back to my experience as a child because he was just a stand-in for my parents, how they didn't listen. And that's the fork in the road where the, old, the issue is not whether the thoughts are there. That you cannot control. Try as you might. And many modalities and methodologies and even meditation paradigms will try to convince you that you well, just try have a different thought. Reframe it as an opportunity. And if you know, but the thoughts won't go away. What they need is to be heard fully without being believed necessarily. Heard fully without being believed necessarily. That requires a kind of differentiation. And to the degree you are identified with your thoughts, you think your thoughts are you is the degree to which you're going to have a very difficult time disbelieving them, right? This is why I always advertise, advertise a meditation so much because meditation is the practice in effect. The result of it is disidentifying from your own mind so that you stop thinking that's you who's talking. And when you get to a certain place in disidentifying, then you can have whatever disturbing thought you can imagine and it doesn't touch the inner peace and stillness that actually is you. I've got a ways to go on that, but I've disidentified from my depressive mind enough so uh, that it doesn't get me for very long. I don't believe it for very long. That is how you eclipse something like depression or anxiety or whatever. Thanks for listening to Manage to Engage, the clear and open podcast. Join us next week when you'll be a little bit closer to who you're destined to be. Until then, know that clear and open is dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do. If you want to help the show grow, I'd appreciate you leaving a rating and review on iTunes. All you have to do is open the Apple Podcasts app, view the full description of the episode, and click the link to leave a rating and review. Or you can go to clearandopen.com slash review, and it will bring you to the right place. If you're looking for more support on your journey, head over to clearandopen.com for even more tools, articles, and free resources. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now.